I was a little bit disappointed with those questions just now because I was hoping someone was going to ask me what kind of fish it was that swallowed Jonah. Because <laughs> the answer is it's a red herring. Um, can you have Jonah chapter 4 open? Uh, and what page is it on your outlines? 16. Page 16, huh? Page 16 on your outlines. Jonah chapter 4. Well, we all like stories to have happy endings, don't we? Uh, every fairy tale is supposed to finish, and they lived happily ever after. Okay? And if you tell a story that doesn't like that, then the children will protest. We like stories that have happy endings, but not the story of Jonah. Right? If you wanted a happy ending to Jonah, then you shouldn't have come for the session this morning. Right? Yesterday, very nice, happy ending. Right? Jonah has already been saved. God showed his mercy to Jonah. Nineveh saved. God shows his mercy to Nineveh. Happy ending. But the problem is the book of Jonah doesn't end there. It goes on to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see what was Jonah's actual reason for running away in the first place. We are given insight into God's plans and purposes and priorities and His nature. And we are challenged to have hearts like His. Uh, let me just quickly remind you about chapters 1 to 3. Remember, Jonah chapter 1, God sends the prophet Jonah to preach against Nineveh because its wickedness has come against him. Instead of obeying God, he runs away in the opposite direction and God sends a storm to attack the ship. The only way for the sailors to be saved is to throw him overboard and they reluctantly do so. And even as he's drowning, God rescues them. God rescues him. He saves him from death uh, through a fish. And in chapter 2, God gives thanks to, uh, Jonah gives thanks to God. And after three days and three nights in the fish, it vomits up Jonah to dry land under God's instructions. And so he experiences not only God's judgment, but God's mercy and salvation. And then in chapter 3, he goes out to Nineveh. He preaches the message to them. He warns them of the judgment to come. They repent at his preaching. They turn to God for mercy. And remember what the king of Nineveh says. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe God will relent and have compassion, and turn from his fierce anger, and we will not perish. And we know that God is compassionate to them, and he does not bring about the destruction that he planned. And so the city is saved. Now, if you've just been preaching, and the entire city repented, you'd be pretty pleased, wouldn't you? A whole lot of people were saved as a result of your preaching. I can imagine you'd be very happy and very grateful that God has used you in that way. But not Jonah. When God has compassion on the Ninevites and doesn't bring about the destruction that, that he threatened, instead Jonah is angry. Now why is Jonah angry? First one of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Well, our translation there is... Uh, simplifies it a bit. Look at that. Look at the. If you're using the ESV, look at the um, footnote down the bottom. The Hebrew says it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Uh, Jonah thought this is wrong. This is evil. It is a great evil that God has had compassion on the Ninevites. These guys are bad. These guys are our enemies. These guys are... God already said in chapter 1 that the wickedness of this city has come up before Him. 
And now instead of destroying them, he's gone and forgiven them. Let them all scot free. That's wrong. That's not the way it's meant to be. Jonah is angry. And in his anger, at least, at least he prays, isn't it? That's a good thing. He prays, but his prayer is very revealing. Remember chapter 1, we, don't know, we didn't know why he, he ran away? Well, here we find out. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that amazing? Jonah had run away because he knew God's character. Remember the rhetorical question that the king of Nineveh asked yesterday? Who knows? Maybe God will be compassionate and turn from his fear. Who knows? Actually, Jonah knew. He knew, though he kept hoping he'd be wrong. He kept hoping that God wouldn't do that. But he knew, didn't he? He knew God is gracious, that he gives people forgiveness they don't deserve. He knew that God is compassionate, that he takes pity on people and shows mercy to them. When all they deserve is judgment. He knew that God is slow to anger, that he would rather see a sinner repent than a sinner die. He knew that God is loving and abounding in love and full of it. He knew that God has a tendency of relenting from sending calamity when people cry to him for mercy. He knew because that's, that's how God had acted towards his people Israel time and time again. He knew because that's how God had revealed himself to Moses. We saw an echo of that in Exodus uh, yesterday. Jonah knew from the parts of the Old Testament that had already been written. And he says to God, I knew what you're like. I knew it. That's why I ran to Tashish. I didn't want to preach the Ninevites because I didn't want them to repent. And I didn't want you to show mercy to them. But you forced me to preach. And now they've repented. You've forgiven them just like I knew you would. And now they won't be punished for all the evil that they've done. And that is wrong. And I am angry. And therefore now, O Lord, verse 3. Therefore now, please take my life for me. It is better for me to die than to live. I wonder what he would like when he was three years old. Big tantrum, isn't it? Come on, kill! I want to die. I, I don't want to keep serving you if you're going to be like that. Right? I know I can't run away from you, so you just take my life. Back in chapter 2, I was nearly dead. Oh, dead, whatever. You rescued me. You judged me justly for my disobedience. You should have killed me. But you're gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You relent from standing calamity. And when I cried out to you, you saved me. Okay, I know what you're doing. If you save me from destruction, if you save me from your own judgment, if you save me from, 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 the, from what I deserve when I sinned and ran away, if you relented from punishing me, how can I complain when you do the same thing to Ninevites? All right, kill me. <laughs> I wish you don't save the Ninevites. It's wrong. It's very wrong. So, to be consistent, I wish you didn't save me either. 
So take my life. Forget about being the God of compassion and justice. It's better for me to, live, to die than to live. Jonah is very angry with God. He decides what God has done is wrong. And to some extent you can see why. Why the Ninevites are nasty people. Don't forget that. They've done atrocious things. Some people say they're like the Nazis of the 7th century. God's own verdict on them was that they were evil. So evil that God would, would destroy them. They deserve to be wiped out. That's how bad they were. And if God had wiped them out, God would have been perfectly just to do that. And remember, God is just. Remember yesterday we, we looked at Exodus and He revealed Himself to Moses as the God of compassion and love, but also the other side, He will not let the guilty go unpunished, didn't He? He said that. God is just and justice must be done. And when it came to the Ninevites, Jonah decided that's the bit he likes. Not letting the guilty go unpunished. That is right. Being merciful and letting them off the hook, that is wrong. It was wrong to Jonah. It was an evil thing to Jonah. That God had acted in pardoning the Ninevites. Now, there's a slight problem here, isn't it? Because who is it that determines right and wrong? It's God, isn't it? Right? Morality is not something that comes outside of God, as if there's a law higher than God that God himself must adhere to. No, 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 no. Right and wrong comes from, from God himself. Something is right because it's consistent with God's character and will. Something is wrong because it doesn't. God is the one who determines right and wrong, not, not us. So how can Jonah decide what God has done is wrong? What God does is right, by definition. And it's not arbitrary. Right? If I said everything is, I do is right by definition, that would be arbitrary because it comes from me. But this is from God. And it comes from His unchanging character. That's not arbitrary either. His character of justice and love. In the Garden of Eden, we tried to determine right and wrong. Look where that got us. And here's Jonah, not only trying to determine right and wrong, but saying, you are wrong. Oh, that's even worse, isn't it? And God calls him to reflect on that. God says to him in verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Is this a, is this a good thing that you're angry? Is this, is this righteous indignation or something else? What right actually have you got? God is a God of justice and He's a God of compassion. He's always consistent with His character. Jonah's already seen that. If Jonah cannot understand how he can be both a God of justice and compassion at the same time in his dealings with the Ninevites, then so be it. If he can't see how God can be right and yet still forgive the Ninevites, so be it. He may not have been able to understand how God can be both just and forgive the Ninevites their atrocities, but that didn't give him any right to judge God. The appropriate response would have been to trust God that God does the right thing. 
to rejoice in the salvation of the Ninevites just as much as he rejoiced in his own. Salvation belongs to the Lord for me. But instead he gets angry. Friends, there are times, aren't there, when we are tempted to stand in judgment on God. Instead of us being in the dock and God as a judge, we put him in the dock and we say whether he's doing right or wrong. God, you are evil to do that. Friends, please don't do that. We must trust God that he does the right thing and the things that he does are right. Even if we don't understand and even if we can't see how it fits together. Now, as far as Jonah's issue is concerned, well, on the other side of the cross, we, we do have the answer, isn't it? How can God be just and yet not punish the Ninevites? Have a look with me. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. The Bible says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. You know what I'm saying? Saying, Jesus on the cross paid the price of all sin, past, present, and future. And by paying the price for our sin, by, by, by the propitiation by His blood, taking God's anger, what he has done is he solved that paradox. Can't anymore say God is wrong to forgive sinners. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price. Verse 25 says, God passed over former sins. Abraham believed God. He was credited to him as righteousness. Sins were forgiven. Why? Because Jesus had paid the price. The Ninevites believed God. God saved them. Why? Because Jesus had paid the price. See, contrary to what Jonah thought, God was not wrong to forgive Nineveh. When they heard his word and believed and repented, it was Jonah who was wrong for not trusting God with the things that he didn't understand. Well, here's another place that the story could have ended, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a happy ending, but it's an ending of sorts. In fact, I think uh, chronologically, this is the end of the story. Uh, we don't know what happens after this, chronologically. Uh, I say that's the end chronologically because I think verse 5 to 11 is a flashback. Uh, because they tell us how Jonah comes to find out uh, about what God's doing to Nineveh. Now, that may, may be right, may be wrong. Some commentators who think that, some commentators who don't think that. Probably doesn't really matter, but let's go on, on, on that way first. Huh? Uh, we assume that verse 5 to 11 is a, is a, is a, is a flashback. Okay? Uh, because he tells us how Jonah is going to find out uh, what happens, actually. All right? Whereas in 1 to 4, he's already found out. Now, why is it a why is it flashback? Well, let's look and see. Now, in verse 5, he goes out of the city. He sits on the east of the city, and he makes a shelter. Now, you see, at this point, he's making a shelter to see what would become of the city. 
See that? He hasn't known yet what's going to happen to the city. He suspected because he knows God's character. and He's not completely sure. He's thinking, maybe God will punish them. Maybe. Because this God hasn't given his decision yet. So chronologically, it belongs, well, I think between verse 9 of chapter 3 and verse 10 of chapter 3. Right? He's waiting to see what the answer is. And in verse 10, you know the answer already. Right? Some of the Hebrew scholars uh, tell us where the translations in verse 5 said, he, he, he sat down, he went out and sat down. Uh, could be better translation, had gone out, had sat down. Okay? Uh, that's consistent with flashback. But why, if it's a flashback, why does the writer put this here rather than between verse 9 and verse 10? Why does he employ the flashback? Well, I think it's there like this because that is where the reader is left when we finish reading the story. Lots of lessons we learn on the way, lots of important lessons we learn on the way, but the main message of the book, the main reason for writing must be here. That's the punchline, right, that the, the book is heading towards. So does that make sense? So he put it right at the end, and so the last thing is, bang, this is what I'm trying to tell you. So let's look at verse 5 again. Jonah had gone out of the city. He had sat down on the east of the city, made a booth for himself there, sat under the shade to see what would become of the city. Right? Now, if you remember from the map we flashed up in the first uh, session. Um, you remember uh, Nineveh was over here, right? And Jonah's coming from over here. So he's heading west. And so he go, heading west, so he has to go through the whole city. And he comes up on the other side, on the east of the city. That makes sense? So, sorry, yeah, he was heading east. He comes from west. Comes from west, heads all the way. So when he comes up on the other side, he's the east. Okay, so now he's on the other side. Um, and he makes some kind of boo or shelter for himself. Uh, he sits in the shade and he waits to see what will happen. Right? A little bit perverse, isn't it? Huh? Yeah. Right? Like on National Day or New Year's Day, people go to KLCC to see the fireworks display. All right? Maybe he's hoping to see a fireworks display or something there. You know? God brings rain and sulfur on, on, uh, on uh, fire and sulfur on, on like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or maybe he's waiting to see a foreign army is going to come or suddenly catches fire and burns the ground. Or I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking. When he's sitting there, he's sitting in his shelter. Now, I think what he wishes is he's got a Coke in one hand, he's got peanuts in the other, right? And he's waiting for the, waiting for the action to start. Uh, but the problem is CNN is not invented yet. So he's in the hot desert, not in the air-conditioned room, no peanuts, no Coke. Uh, and the shelter is probably not a very effective one. Uh, and uh, it, it's not very extensive, and he's actually not really comfortable there at all. No, it's a miserable place. Uh, the area, not many trees, actually, uh, that part of the world. Uh, so he won't have much raw materials to build it. Uh, so, unlike watching CNN, uh, it's not a lot of fun. But then God does something really kind for Jonah. Verse 6. God appoints a plant. Remember how in, back earlier on, he appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah? Right? Uh, he was being kind and compassionate. He's giving some, Jonah something that he, he doesn't deserve. And now he's doing something else. He appoints a plant. Right. He appoints a plant, uh, uh, where are we now? Um, uh, in verse 6, he makes it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. Right. Now, 
the interesting thing is the word discomfort here, look down the bottom in the footnote, it says save him from his, from his evil, isn't it? Right? It's the same word that was translated evil or wrong in chapter 4 verse 1, or we translated that, uh, where he was thinking that God had done something wrong. Uh, it's used in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 for the calamity and the trouble that the soldiers were facing when God attacked them in the storm. It's used in chapter 4, verse 2 to describe the disaster that God relents from sending. Right? The writers use, it means something slightly different in each time, but he's using it as a pun to connect all these things together. Because you see, Jonah and the sailors had a problem. Jonah was running from God. Uh, he had and was suffering the consequences. Nineveh had a problem. Right? Here, Jonah has a problem. And what's his problem? He's inadequately shaded. It's his own fault, sitting outside, going to watch the, the fireworks, and he's suffering the consequences. He's hot. He's got a problem. The Ninevites had a problem, weren't they? What was their problem? They were wicked. They would suffer the consequences. What had God done each time? God had rescued Jonah by appointing a fish to save him. He was very thankful. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now, he got, what had God done for the Ninevites? He had forgiven them. And now, God is doing it again. He's being kind. Uh, he appoints a plant to shelter him. And Jonah is very happy. We know already that he is not happy about God rescuing the Ninevites, but, but he's, he's very happy about God giving him this plant. Okay? So God appoints a plant. Uh, but then, in verse 7, God appoints something else. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Okay. And then he appoints something else again. Verse 8, that when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Worm eats the plant. The hot east wind beats down on unprotected Jonah. Right? All of this appointed by God. And what does Jonah say? Verse 8. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Okay? He's at it again. Although actually this is the first time lah, if we're taking the chronology that I suggested. He's angry now. Angry why? Angry because no more plan. And now he has to face the has to face the uh, the elements. And God says to Jonah in verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is that a good thing? Is that right? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. See this tantrum behavior again, isn't it? Right? But, but, but you can see why he's angry. Can you see why he's angry? Right? First, God gives him a plant to, to protect him, makes him really happy. Oh, God loves me, huh? Give me a plant to protect me. And then for no apparent reason, God takes it away. And he attacks him with the wind and the sun. What kind of game is God playing with him? Would you be angry if God did that to you if you went half away across the world to preach his word to some foreign people they don't care about anyway? What kind of, what kind of thanks is this? Jonah's angry about the plant. He's angry because God gave him a good gift and then took it away. 
He's angry because the God of compassion doesn't seem to be showing so much compassion to him right now. He's angry because he's lost his plant and he really liked that plant. (laughs) It wasn't just any old plant, was it? It was God's supernatural provision for him. Wherever you see the plant come up in one day. It's God's supernatural provision for him. Wow. Gave him shelter, made him happy, was significant by what it, by what it meant to him. This is, this is important. God is supernaturally looking after me and now God has removed the plant. He's removing his kindness from me. The worm eats the plant. God is punishing me by taking away the good things that he gave me. Here I am waiting for the Ninevites to be punished. Here I am waiting for the judgment of God to fall on the city. And at least symbolically, it falls on me as I sit outside the city. Isn't it? Now, he doesn't get badly punished, does he? In fact, God only takes away, takes away what he gave him only just one day before. So it's not like God is badly punishing him, but it's enough to make him angry. Very angry. Angry enough to die. And to feel that his anger is justified. And this is when Jonah finds out what God's intentions really are for Nineveh. Verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you do not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He he is so concerned about this plant. He didn't do anything for the plant. It's a plant that he didn't even ask for. It was just the gift of grace that God gave him. And a gift that God withdrew when he wanted to. And when all is said and done, it is still just a plant. It was there one day, it was gone the next. And yet he felt so strongly about this plant that he says, take my life. It's laughable, isn't it? It would be if it weren't so pathetic. And God says, if you can get so worked up about a miserable plant, how do you think I feel about Nineveh? You are concerned for the plant. And verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Even cattle are worth more than a plant. And Nineveh, God says, of 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That is, they are powerless, they are pitiful, they are unable to help themselves. And I care for them. You see, the world looks at Nineveh and they see a big power. Jonah looks at Nineveh and he sees an evil military threat. God looks at Nineveh and sees people who are spiritually poor and desperately needy. Pathetic, pitiful, heading for destruction and crying to him for mercy. And friends, God cared for the Ninevites. 
And if Jonah had any right at all to be angry about the plant, how much more does God have the right to be compassionate to these people? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Should not I have compassion on that? Should not I care for them? These sinners who repented. And friends, here at the end of the book, we see God's heart on His sleeve, don't we? This is the point that the whole book has been coming to. Here's what it's all about. It's the attitude of God to the lost. It's the attitude of God to sinners who repent and cry out to Him. These people matter to God. These people matter to God. And we see that again in the New Testament, don't we? Now, if you come with me to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, you'll be very familiar with this passage. Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we, 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 we see Jesus. And we see Jesus in verse 1 and 2 with the tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near to Him. They are coming to the one who can give them forgiveness and life. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they grumble and say, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Bit, bit like Jonah, do you think? They don't want their friends. They don't want these guys to be. These guys are evil. Not so keen. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus tells them three parables, isn't it? The parable of a lost sheep, the parable of a lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. The parable of the lost sheep, he talks about if you have a hundred sheep and you lost one of them, what do you do? You leave 99 in the open country and you go out and you... Go after the one who was lost until you find it. And then when you find it, you put it on your shoulders and you come home rejoicing. And you call all your friends and say, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep that was lost. And, and Jesus says in verse 7, There'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who had need, no need repentance. And then the parable of the lost coin, this woman loses a coin, and what does she do? She lights a lamp, she searches, searches, searches the whole house until she finds the coin. And she calls all her neighbors and says, Come, rejoice with me, I, I found the coin that I lost. It's a, a bit over the top, isn't it? It's a bit over the top. But that's just showing God's, God's heart, right? Over the top, and he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then there's a story of the prodigal son. The son who goes off and leaves the father, rejects his rule. Finally, he comes back. And what happens? Ah, the father is so happy. Grounds out to meet him, rejoicing in the sinner who is repentant. But then you've got the older brother who's not so keen and doesn't share the father's heart. The father's heart, the woman's heart, the shepherd's heart, is for the lost. 
And notice what Jesus says uh, down in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I used to think this was talking about, you know, when someone becomes a Christian, the whole angels have a party. But you look at it carefully. What does it say? There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's having the party? It's God who's having the party, isn't it? God is the one that the angels stand before. Who is the one who is so happy, so delighted, so loves it so much when one sinner repents? It's God. That's His heart. That's His heart for people. Jonah, he's like the older brother in Jesus' story. He doesn't care for the city. He doesn't care for the people. He doesn't care for the fact they're facing God's judgment. In fact, he wants it to happen. All he cares about is a stupid plan. Because what he really cares about is himself, isn't it? But God's heart is for the lost. The Ninevites, they mattered to God. Actually, they mattered to God even before they repented. Because he sent Jonah to warn them of the judgment to come. And for us as believers, we've seen God's heart of love demonstrated so clearly in the story of Jonah, but we've seen it even more clearly in the cross, haven't we? Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against Him, while we were lost, Christ died. He didn't die. Wait, wait, wait. You're good. Okay, I'll die for you. No. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's heart bleeds for people who are sinful, who are under the threat of judgment. God sees us. God sees people as poor and pitiful and weak. He sees them with a heart of compassion. And He loved us when we were that way. He loved us when we, were, when we were far, far, far away from Him. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paid the price of our sin. He took our guilt and our punishment. Took our place under God's wrath so that, so that we can be forgiven and God still be just. And the cross shows us in an unmistakable way exactly the same thing as here. God's heart for sinners who are lost. And Jonah's heart is not like that. Remember we saw yesterday how Jonah points forward to Jesus, the one who dies, so to speak, and rises again. One who is sent to bring repentance and faith. Well, today we see how inadequate Jonah is beside Jesus. Because Jonah lacks the Father's heart. But Jesus perfectly exemplifies it. That's why He's there eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's why He came to Jerusalem, knowing that they were going to reject Him and crucify Him. And you know, when you read the Gospels, we won't look it up now, but when you read in the Gospels how He came to Jerusalem, he knew Jerusalem was going to reject him. He knew that they would suffer destruction as a result. What did he do? 
he broke down and cried. Right? He still pronounced a judgment, still pronounced a judgment against Jerusalem, but he did so in tears. He did so in tears because he loves lost people just like his father. And a week after that, like Jonah, he went outside the city. Jonah went outside the city to see and watch what would happen to the people and see them getting judged. Jesus went outside the city to suffer the judgment for them. Jonah lost a plant under God's judgment. Jesus, the one greater than Jonah, lost his life. And when Jonah said he was angry enough to die on account of the plant, Jesus was loving enough to die on account of the people. People like you and me. People like the Ninevites who are under the threat of God's wrath. God's heart was for the lost. Jesus' heart was for the lost. And if we are following Jesus, then our heart must be for the lost as well. The Apostle Paul followed Jesus. He imitated Christ. His heart was for the lost. Uh, that's why in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, he is willing to flex and bend, not because he's got no principles, but because his principles are deeper than superficial. He says, I'm free from all. I'll make myself a servant to all. To the Jews, I'll become as a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though I'm not really under the law, to win those under the law. Those outside the law, the Gentiles, I become like one outside the law, though I'm still under the law of Christ. To the weak, I become weak, so I can win the weak. I become all things to all men. Why? So that I can save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel that I might share it with them in its blessings. He's willing to flex. He's willing to go out of his way. He's willing to do things, to act in different ways, not because he's got no principles, but because he's got a deeper principle. Principle of the gospel. And he's wanting to save people. Because his heart, like the heart of Jesus, is, is for the lost. What about us? Do we follow Jesus? Or do we follow Jonah? Jesus saw people with his father's eyes as lost, facing God's wrath, needing saving. Jonah saw people from a worldly point of view, powerful threat. How do we see people? When we look at people, do we see them primarily in social economic terms? This guy is a rich CEO. This guy lives on the streets. That's how we define them. Do we see in racial terms, this woman is one of us, this woman is one of them? We see in business terms, each person I meet is a potential new customer or business rival. Or do we see them as God sees them? Hopelessly lost or in despair. Or his precious redeemed children. How do we view people? And how do we love people? Well, we love lost people like Jesus does. Jonah was more concerned for the gift that he has given than, than to be like the giver. A plant was a gift from God that was never promised, just given. Yesterday we read that Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He was thinking of the Gentiles. But here we see his idol. 
the thing that he loved more than he loves God and he gets angry with God when it's taken away and it's just a plant and he's more concerned about that than what God is really concerned about and that's the people of Nineveh Jesus is not like that is he Jesus had everything but let go emptied himself as a servant to die under the judgment of God for us because he wanted to obey the will of the Father and to love and save people as the Father wanted him to we've got to ask ourselves what about us God has given us so many good things things that never promised just gave He's got all kinds of things. He's given us food to eat, a place to stay, work to do. He's given us money to spend. He's given us all kinds of things in so many different, so many different ways. Aren't we? We're so blessed in so many ways. What is it that would make us angry with God if He took it away? And what are we more concerned about? These things or the salvation of people? What are we more concerned about? These things? Or that the gospel goes out? Are we more concerned about the things that God has given us than about being like Him? Are we like Jonah? Is our heart for the lost? Do we have compassion for them? Are we touched by the desperate need of people who are, who are going to hell every day? One third of people in the world live in people groups that are untouched by the gospel. Have any compassion for billions of people who never heard of the cross? What about even in KL? KL contains millions of people who like the Ninevites are under the threat of judgment and condemnation. Do we even care? Or are we more concerned about our pathetic little plants? When I look at it that way, I realize with shame I'm a lot more like Jonah than I first thought. And I suspect that many of us will, will feel that way as well. So how do we nurture hearts that care for the lost? Well, perhaps we could start by remembering where we fit into the story. Because we usually think, again, that we're like Jonah. One with God's message who really ought to go and care for the people who are lost. And yes, that's what I've been saying. And yes, we are, indirectly. We are like Jonah because Jesus is like Jonah, the real one, the good one. And he really does care for people. And since we are his people, we are to do that as well. We have his heart. Indirectly, yes, we are like Jonah. But only because of God's mercy are we in this privileged position, isn't it? Remember what we worked out yesterday? Who in the story are the people who are most really similar to us? It's the Ninevites. We are the Gentiles. We are the people from the nations who, are not part of, who were not part of the people of God. We were the ones... Like the Ninevites, doing evil and facing God's wrath. And then the gospel came to us, and we were saved, just like the Ninevites. Aren't we glad that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Aren't we glad that He loved us? 
Aren't we glad that he's had mercy on us and saved us even though we don't deserve? Aren't we glad that Jesus wasn't like Jonah but he came to us with full humility and full love? Aren't we glad that he used someone or more likely a whole number of people to get his message to even me? And if that's the case, then how can I not have a heart to give the gospel to others? It's bad enough if Jonah doesn't have a heart, he doesn't love the Ninevites, doesn't want them to be saved. It'd be even more bizarre if the Ninevites did the same thing, isn't it? And so as we seek to develop a heart for the lost, we can start by realizing that if not for the grace of God, that's, that's, that's actually us. And if I was lost, I would want you to gently, humbly, and truthfully tell me the good news about Jesus. Would you do that for me? And if I'd want you to do that for me, then surely I should do it for somebody else. Well, brothers and sisters, let's keep praying that God would lift our eyes to, to see the spiritual realities that are in front of us, to see things from His point of view, to love the lost, long for them to repent, and have hearts that are willing to pay the price of being involved in whatever way we can of taking the gospel to them. Hearts that beat in resonance with the heart of God. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you that so often we are much more like Jonah than, than we are like your son. We are very thankful for the gifts that you've given us. And sometimes we value them even more than we value bringing the gospel to other people. And we value them even more than we love those who are lost. Father, we thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has, has rescued and saved us. We thank you that even though we were like the people of Nineveh, facing an impending doom, the message of the gospel came to us. Your spirit opened our hearts. You granted us salvation through him. And our Father, we pray that as people who are saved by your compassion and your mercy, that you'll grant us hearts that are like yours. Hearts that love the lost and hearts that desire people to be saved 
Help us to be people who are faithful in bringing your message to others. Help us to do it not hiding the truths, but being straightforward with it. But by doing it lovingly in a way that befits the gospel. Father, we pray that you would be molding us not just individually, but as a community together. That we might be outward looking. That we might be people who are willing to work hard and make sacrifices in order to see the gospel go out throughout the Klang Valley and beyond. Father, make us more like Jesus, we pray. And we ask this in his name. Amen.